Hey, everyone. Welcome to the podcast. This is Andy Garcia checking in once again from Auckland, New Zealand. Now, today we are going to be discussing natural animal health. And those of you who know me, you know this is right up my alley. So I'm really excited to have this conversation today. So my guest today is a small animal health consultant and homeopathic practitioner who specializes in canine and feline nutrition and natural health care. Now, this guest today is checking in from New York City. So please welcome to the show, Anthea Appel. How you doing, Anthea? I'm doing fine. How you doing? Doing great. Yeah, just, uh, you know, it's Tuesday morning here in New Zealand. So we're just getting into the, uh, the work day. And uh, I'm excited to have you on the show because this is always a topic that I love to discuss here on my podcast, um, talk, discussing animal health. I know that you're passionate about this topic, mm-hmm. too. So let's just go ahead and dive right in. So please, can you share your story of how you became interested in natural health care for animals? Well, I've always been interested in holistic care for humans, and I know about herbs and homeopathy I've been doing for over 30 years, and herbs also. And um, I got interested in animal health because my Siamese cat, um, Poppy, who lived to be 19 and a half, she recently passed away, but when she was much younger, uh, she got pancreatitis. And uh, the symptoms... The only symptoms I saw was I could see that she was in pain in the lower region. And every time she walked, she would cringe. So I knew there was something going on. And I took her to uh, the vet. She, I always consider Poppy as my teaching cat because this experience, when I went to the vet and she had pancreatitis, I was correct in my assumption. And she almost died from it. It's a very serious illness. It's very common. And she was at the clinic for like a whole week. And then the vet comes out after she's released and they give me my cat and they say, she's going to have to live on this food. And they, you know how vets, they come out with this whole carton of, of um, veterinary prescribed uh, prescription, low fat canned processed food. Yep. And uh, I was like, okay, so I bought the, I bought the carton. I didn't know. And I went home. And I was kind of depressed about the whole thing because he said if she does not li- eat this food, she would have it. It would be chronic. It would keep coming back and keep coming back. So I had, I'm talking to a friend in California about my cat and how depressed I was. And she says, why don't you feed the cat raw meat? And it just went off in my head. Yeah, that makes sense. I didn't argue with her. It made complete sense. Animals don't cook their food. And at that time, and back in, this is back in the 90s, um, you, don't, you didn't see that much stuff on the internet about raw feeding, but I did find a few things, and I did find a vet had written a book about it. She's an expert on feline diabetes, and she talked about it, and I, and I, I just went to the store, got some raw chicken, brought it home. The cat ate it. She didn't, she's not, cats aren't as finicky, if we ever talk about that, about cats are not finicky, just cats just know what they want, and when you give them what they want, they eat it, and she ate the chicken, and from that day on, I never had another reoccurrence of the pancreatitis. Wow. And, uh, yeah, so there was, I used to listen to podcasts a lot, and there were some animal nature paths. I knew there were human nature paths, but I never heard of an animal nature path. 
and they they talked about the natural way of taking care of um, cats and dogs. They specialize in that, and uh, I wanted to study this, and uh, so I enrolled in an animal naturopathic school. There is there is a few out there, and I got certified, and um, homeopathy. Like I said, I've always done it for myself, humans, and everything. But I just I found a few homeopathic veterinarians and here, listening to them talk about. And of course, you can use it on animals, and that's what I've been doing. Then I studied herbs, Western herbs, uh, and Chinese herbs, and uh, that's what I've been doing since. And I set up my little consultation, and uh, I help other people. And I always it's you know nutrition is so important that most of the health problems that people bring their pets to me have been corrected by simply getting them off commercial pet food and getting them on a raw diet. It clear, it clear up skin. You can even reverse uh, diabetes in cats if you catch it in time. And um, IBD, all that can be corrected. A lot, of, a lot of issues can be corrected once you get them on a species-appropriate diet of raw meat and organs. Isn't that incredible? It's just so much of a foundation to health too, is yes, what yes. you're putting in your body, you know, and yeah. uh, food is, food is medicine. It really mm-hmm. is, you know, food is life, you know, and it, it can provide so many benefits when you've got your animals on a quality diet. Um, so it's great. It's a very powerful story that you told there. And just, just a, so basically you just switched the diet. Switch the diet. Like, is that pretty much it in the pancreatitis, you know? That was it. it. That's that's all I can tell you. I mean, there is <laughs> herbs there is herbs you can use. Right. Yep. Uh, to help to bring the fire down because in Chinese herbs, uh, herb herbology, this is uh, considered heat. So you want cool herbs, you want to bring it down. You can do that. Um, like if you have an acute attack of it, there are some herbs you can use and uh, to to help you know, but there's nothing, there, there is so little study on pancreatitis that uh, it's 50-50. If you have an acute attack, it's 50-50 whether the animal's going to survive. And they, if they do survive, then immediately they're going to say, put the cat on a, on a low-fat diet. But it's not enough because the canned processed food, cont- uh, there's a it causes insulin resistance, and insulin resistance is in um, uh, pancreatitis is in, is behind diabetes and a lot of the inflammations. So you have that constantly going on in the body. There's chronic low-level inflammation going on through the body, and so that's why you, they never get better uh, with pancreatitis. They'll have another attack and another and another, but just switching to the raw diet was just that was enough. Yes. I mean, so, so incredible to just shift that. And, and what, you know, within my practice, I'm always looking for the maintaining cause, you know, what is, Mm -hmm. what is continuing to cause this problem? Um, Mm -hmm. And in your case, then, like you said, in many cases too, it's the food, you know, the food is the issue. And once you just eliminate the food then everything, the body comes back right again, you know, especially when you're putting them on a high quality food, um, like a raw diet. Um, so we'll we'll definitely tap into that more. I, I you know I want to hear more. So let's talk about. I just want to hear about your three cats because I know that you say you have three, have three rambunctious cats. So let's yeah. let's give I them have, a shout out. Tell me about yeah, that. Yeah, well, I have my Burmese. He's uh, he just turned eleven. <clears throat> my Burmese. He's a male, 
I have a, I, well, I have a new cat now, my Siamese, and she's eight months old right now. So because Poppy, my teacher cat who passed away, she passed away about, oh, about two years ago, almost, almost a year and a half, whatever. And uh, she didn't die from pancreatitis. She, she was, om I was hoping she would make it to 20. <laughs> anyway, and, really and uh, yeah, and then I have my uh, Snaggle or Snagglepuss. He's my rescue cat. Somebody had, um, it was one night, I always remember the night. It was Friday the 13th, a full moon. It was raining and somebody pulled up in front of my house and threw him out the car and drove away. And of course the cat is hysterical, crying out in the, in the front. And I come downstairs and there, he was beautiful. He had to have been about a year old. He was so friendly, I was able to pick him up and he's purring away and I looked at him, he didn't have any fleas. Uh, I tried to look at his teeth, but he wouldn't let me look at his teeth. But I decided I was gonna adopt him. So I bring him upstairs, I give him some raw food. And as he's eating the raw, I noticed baby teeth were flying out of his mouth. And I'm saying, mm. wait a minute, he's one years old. <laughs> What's going on here? You know, usually you lose, usually you lose most of them by the age of seven months. You start losing around three months and they should be all gone by seven. And I opened up his mouth and I couldn't believe what I saw. I've never seen anything like, like this. He must have had like a hundred teeth. He had double fangs, double Whoa. canines. He had, he had so much, I've never seen anything like it. I suppose whoever got rid of this cat must have sold the teeth and the, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. And got a black cat with all these teeth. And I said, oh my God, what am I gonna do? What am I gonna do? And I said, the only thing I know is homeopathy. And so I, I looked up through my uh, Medica book and uh, I found some things about teeth and baby teeth and, and I gave it to him. And with, within 24 hours, these teeth, baby teeth just started falling out and it, it's, now he's got normal looking mouth. <laughs> so. <laughs> wow, that's interesting. And especially because it was Friday the 13th and here it raining and everything. It's like the whole, you know, the perfect, you know, mm -hmm. scenario for this black cat to show up with all these extra teeth in there, oh you know, my these layers of teeth. I took uh, a, it's a, I do have it on my website, a blog. I didn't get a chance to uh, take a picture of all the teeth he had, but uh, you could see the double, double canines. And uh, I'm like, oh my God, what do I do? Because I, I took him to the vet for a wellness check of, of like uh, a week later. And, um, vet says to me, oh, I'll just pull those out. But because it was the double fangs was still remained, uh, even though I got rid of all the little baby teeth. And uh, anyway, the homeopathy within a, a few days, they were gone. They were out. What, but they were, what, you know, which remedy did you use by just curiosity? Um, oh, God. Uh, <laughs> I think Carbonica was one of them. I okay. think. Do you do homeopathy? Uh, yes, I do. Yeah. I specialize in homeopathy as well. I did a couple of things. I also gave him Ruda too. I gave him everything I could think of because because much of it matched the um, the symptoms that he had. So uh, car um, car uh, bolicum, right? Um, yep. Yeah, that one. I gave him. There was two of them I gave, but they yeah, they but came out in the Ruda too because of ligaments and and so on. Yes, but exactly. 
Yeah. And that's the thing with homeopathy. It's, you know, it's matching the symptoms. So it's not just mm -hmm. if any, any case you just use blanket, you know, rutagrav or, mm -hmm. you know, just pick out a remedy. No, it has to be specific, you know, and then that's really the key there. So, um, but just always curious to, you know, what people, what works, you know what I mean? Uh, that's way, that way I could keep it in my mind and go, Oh, you know what? I remember Anthea had a similar situation. You know, and, and she used this. Let me see if any of those symptoms match that remedy, you know, because there's so many remedies to choose from. And that's our job yeah. as homeopaths to try and figure out which remedy that is. That's the art, you know. Oh, yeah. So it's a matter of uh, narrowing things down. It, it can be tricky. I know a lot of people are, get nervous about homeopathy. Uh, sometimes it's just intuition also. Yep, definitely. So let's talk about, let's just back up and, and what were you doing before you became a practitioner? <laughs> and then what did you do to, you know, what was it that made you decide this is what you want to do as a career? Well, I, I was working in law before. Uh, that's a, in the law business. Uh, uh -huh, yep. It's about as much as I'll just say, but I, I, okay. I've always been interested. I, ever since I was a little girl, spending uh, summers on my uh, grandparents' farm surrounded by animals um, there was a lot of herbs that were used you know we never went to the vet unless it was a uh a trauma but uh and you had to see the vet for something like uh, traumatic but uh for basic things it was always herbs and so i learned herbs that way and uh i've always had an interest but like i said when my cat got sick that was a turning point and and listening to these animal nature paths talking yeah. And I said, yeah, I want to do this. I want to do this. Absolutely. Especially when you have a real transformational um, situation like that with Poppy there. It was funny because mm -hmm. I, was, I was interviewing another um, naturopath down in Australia named Ruth Hatton. And she also mm -hmm. went from law to anim animal naturopath. <laughs> so, funny stories that, you know, how, they're, how similar both of you came from law and now, you know, working in the animal health care field. So um, let's just talk about your approach in your health clinic. So what, what is your approach? Well, um, I always have my, uh, when people contact me, I always tell them I want three forms filled out because I want to see, because when you do homeopathy or even herbs, I, I spent a lot of time with people. I, my consultations were last one hour to almost two hours, just talking uh, to them about the animal. With homeopathy, you want to know the history. You want to know the history. You want to know um, what happened to me even years ago. I, I do something that's called um, sequential remedies where I go all the way back to the day the animal is born and move my way up to the present time uh, for every trauma uh, or emotional trauma, physical trauma, anything that's happened to the animal still affects its health to this very day. So we do something where we remove every trauma from the cat's life. And, um, and that could take a, a, a bit to to do sequential remedies. And then I want to know the cat's personality. I want to know um, the relationship with the humans in the family, the favorite toy, every, everything about the cat to understand its constitution because homeopathy is picked on that. And, um, and I want to see the history of, of illnesses, uh, there's how many t inflammations or how it reacted to vaccines or or to to anything else in this pet. It's just, 
it's it's just accumulation. It's holistic. You want to see the whole picture, so you're looking at everything. And of course, diet is always important. And I always ask my clients, listen, um, change the diet. And I've never had any problem when anyone said no, no. They've all been willing to do it because, like I said, once you do the food and you do the health that change that diet to a species appropriate, a lot of things clear up. And um, that's basically what I do. Well, I give you a story talking about homeopathy. Yeah, definitely. I had, I had a, a dog. It was a, um, a huge, it was a, like a sheep dog. What was it called? It was a mountain pearly, per, per, what's it called? Are they? Uh, uh, Pyrenees. Oh. oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Great Pyrenees. Great Pyrenees, right? And um, he had a, this was a new owner. It was a rescue dog. The dog was rescued and it had terrible uh, skin issue, terrible dermatitis. Uh, its rear and rear hind quarter area just pulled out all the fur and it was red and sore and it was really bad. And, she'd, and the cat, dog was on a natural uh, diet, was eating a raw meat and she was um, doing everything natural, but it wouldn't clear up, wouldn't clear up. So I, I, I'm helping her and any, nothing that we were doing was clearing up. And this is also a dog that would also, when she was at work, would break through the window and roam the neighborhood. So the dog had this need to escape all the time. So it had the need to escape, which is belladonna. It's, it's running away and uh, the, red, the redness too. But what was interesting, because we couldn't just couldn't find the right remedy. I said, is there anything about dog's past that you haven't told me about? And she says, well, the original owner, when he was a puppy, he had, it was, he was working on a ranch, I've, somewhere in the Southwest, he was working on a ranch and he was supposed to uh, guard goats. And one day the rancher comes home and one of the goats was dead. And he was so angry because he thought the dog had killed this goat that he was going to kill the dog. He came out with a shotgun. He was going to shoot and kill the dog. And wow. an owner's, owner stopped him and said, no, don't kill the dog. Just give it away. So he gave it away. And I said, well, that's it. That's the clue. Because you have to be very, very angry uh, to want to kill something and um, like that. So I gave a homeopathic remedy pertaining to that. And the skin cleared up like a week later. Wow, incredible. So, so it was the trauma lingering it, from that situation that, from the, you know, yeah. even though the animal was on the best of the best diet and everything else, mm -hmm. um, you know, good home, you know, and because those are all the clues we're looking for. Like, what's the environment? You know, so everything was right. It's like, what's wrong? Oh, okay. It's this past trauma. So I it, love how just, you go back and pick through those layers. Yeah, the past emotional trauma is, was what I was looking for. And that was the answer. Yeah. And that stuff can just linger, you know, and I, I'm the mm -hmm. same way too. I want to know anything and everything from as far as back as we can go. You know, I want to know if the kitten got, was the, was the runt and got kicked out mm -hmm. or, you know, was yeah, there a, right. was there some, a scuffle? Was it, did it feel abandoned at some time? Did it get lost in, in, in around the yard? <laughs> you know, anything mm -hmm. and everything that can provide us in the right direction uh, to provide this holistic um, form of care within the, you know, homeopathic practice. So, um, yeah, the, you know, that's, so the skin cleared up and, and did it ever come back and that was it? No, that was it. Once, once we uh, addressed that emotional issue, it cleared up and it didn't run away anymore either. 
<laughs> oh, yeah, there you go. Remedy sorted that out too. The need mm -hmm. to escape. Yep. So let's discuss the multiple modalities that you're training. I know we've been going into homeopathy. Um, you know, talk a little bit. Do you, how do you incorporate, you know, herbalism within your practice as well? And then is there any supplements you kind of tap into depending? Yeah, you know? I'll, I'll do, uh, I'll do supplements only if, if it's required because it might be a, uh, um, anti-nutrient uh, um, antioxidants it, it depends on the condition I might do because I'm not really big on supplements you really should get it from food yeah. um, but sometimes because the dog or cat has been on a poor diet I might have some nutrients uh, some antioxidants or some vitamins added uh, that's as far as I'll go and not for not forever not for the rest the animal's life because you got to tell that to the client you say you, you uh have have him on a supplement for such and such time and then you know once he's on uh, the new diet and everything you wouldn't have to you don't have to worry about that anymore um the only supplements i ever suggest is with cats is to add taurin um mm, yep. i'm very particular about that because even if you're feeding raw meat when you freeze raw, when you freeze meat and then thaw it out, because uh, taurin is a water-soluble amino acid, it will it will leak from the meat and it'll be in the water. So it will lose some uh, taurin when you defrost, and we don't know how much. It, it differs from meat to meat. So you just don't know. Nobody knows how much is lost. So to be on the safe side, because you can't overdose on taurin, I always suggest they add it to even a raw meat diet because I don't want to take a chance on uh, the heart or the vision. So I do that and um, sometimes and sometimes omega-3, sometimes fish oil, maybe, depends, krill oil. I might, I bet you should be able to get um, omega-3s from saturated animal fats because there is the precursor to turn, uh, to t for the body to turn it into omega-3s. So I, I don't go too crazy with the, um, with the fish oil, but the taurin is the only supplement with cats I um, will advise people to, to use. Um, but yeah, some supplements, I mean, I can't say specifically um, why. I mean, if you're, dealing with, um, if you're dealing with cancer or something like that, uh, vitamin D3 is very important. I've, I have noticed that uh, a lot of sick animals are deficient in vitamin D3. And people who are listening know cats and dogs do not get vitamin D3 from the sun. They get it from their food. And they get it from liver and they get it from blood. So don't pour out that blood. Make sure they get that. So, uh, But I've oh, noticed yeah. a lot of ill animals are low in vitamin D3. So sometimes a vet will do a vitamin D3 test and then you'll know how much to give. Just don't do it without... You know, don't go buy vitamin D3 supplements without talking to a vet first because that can be talked because nobody knows the toxic max that you can give a cat or a dog. But if you overdo it, um, it can be toxic. So you just want to give the amount that they're deficient of. What else? Uh, sometimes that there might be with Chinese herbs with uh, I could treat with cancer. I, I would it depends on with. I'll, I'll do Chinese herbs with, with cancer and maybe I don't like to do homeopathy with, I don't like to mix the two up, but with cancer, I'll, I'll do the, the herbs. Okay. And rather yeah, than, so rather than homeopathy. 
So you kind of keep it separate, you know, in terms of your modality, you're, you're either using one or the other type mm -hmm. of scenario. So it's either, it's either homeopathy or in this case, you know, case by case, or this case it's mm -hmm. just using the herbalism. I've seen a lot of success using Chinese herbs with, uh, with can cancer cases. Um, so that's why I probably lean to, to, towards that where you, you see the tumor shrink and you keep them in, um, a little healthier, a little longer. Um, but uh, yeah, homeopathy, yeah, I like to, I'll do that with, it It all depends. I, I don't know. It's like I go by intuition. I go, yeah, I think Chinese herbs will help with this. No, homeopathy will help with this. Absolutely. Yep. And, you know, those, the, the herbs can just be so powerful. Plant material mm -hmm. can just be so powerful, especially on the therapeutic level, you know, where it's, you know, can work with the cells um, and, and get things back on track and cleansing and, and mm -hmm. um, you know, everything else, you know, homeopathy. I like to look at like anything. Well, I, I guess it's all kind of emotional at some point, you know, there's yeah. always some type of emotional link, but any bigger emotional stuff, we're definitely looking at, you know, homeopathy to come in there and, and, and sort things out, so to speak, yeah. help assist with the process and let the animal sort yeah. things out. It, it pushes the body to healing. Yeah. Uh, I feel that homeopathy could probably treat any, any illness. I mean, I've seen, I've seen miracles done with homeopathy. Here's a, here's a story that just blew a client away. He was an, he, he was a, a traditional Chinese medicine practitioner and he didn't have much faith in homeopathy because he just didn't understand how it worked. And he had a cat, it was a rescue cat that had cancer. And the cat had gone through uh, numerous radiation treatments, I think about 15. And he started, the cat started to develop necrotic um, necrosis on the, one of the paws, mm. uh, where the paw was turning black. And uh, I guess it comes, you know, cause a lot of times um, with, uh, if you understand homeotoxicology, the, the toxins are going to uh, excrete out of the body through one of the orifices and of course they have scent glands in between their paws so the cancer was probably coming you know toxins were probably coming out from there so the paw was going necrotic and turning black and the stench it was basically like gangrene the stench was oh my god you, you could smell it from the street it was and the allopathic vet had him like um soaked uh, the paw in some antiseptic but the smell was was there it wasn't a cure and this mm. is so i said let's try homeopathy so i made um it was echinacea and we put drops we used it externally and he i had him put drops of echinacea a homeopathic and the smell disappeared and i said okay you got to keep doing it every hour on the hour this is you're going to have to keep doing it and doing it and within a week or so the the margins of the necrotic skin started to shrink and the pink skin was coming back and he, he just couldn't believe that we had reverse gangrene basically Whoa. through homeopathy and then we and i mentioned this to another uh, uh, a holistic vet and she said well you know echinacea and it's true echinacea was used by the native american indians to treat um, snake bites because if you get bit by a rattlesnake your skin goes necrotic it starts to die in your hand right. and your arm and your hand and everything turns black and you end up <laughs> having to chop it off and the Native American Indians would use echinacea to reverse to reverse cell damage 
So really interesting. That, that, that was like a topical application top, too. Topical application only. Thirty wow. C. It was only thirty C. Wow. And that that blew him away. He says, "I got to learn this. I got to learn this." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yep. Absolutely. You know, you, you get you get inspired, especially if you're already in the field. And you go, oh, yeah. You know, I I got to take this on board, and 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 I need to add this to my my practice. So mm -hmm. I want to dive in because I know this. You're you're top. You're you're passionate about a couple of these topics, and so I, I you know there's two big ones I wanted to talk to you about today. Now the first one is irritable bowel disease. And yeah. Uh -huh. So let's go ahead and just dive right into this topic. And, and can you tell me a bit about that and, and how do you approach it? Oh, okay. Well, IBD, the definition of it is, it is well, they, they think it's idiopathic. They don't know where it comes from. I think it comes from food um, and uh, it's, it's characterized by inflammation of the stomach, the, the small intestines and, and or the large intestines. And uh, you will see... Usually the symptoms can be vomiting or diarrhea for at least three weeks, but it could be also much, something much subtle as pooping outside uh, the cat box. It can be um, a cat chronically throwing up fur balls because that tells you there's a motility uh, issue going on. And, um, and so that you, you would look at. So there's, you can't, there's no test you can do. You can't the only test they could do is something invasive, like a biopsy, but that, that, that's not, you know, you don't want that to happen. And it's very difficult, whether it's lymphoma or whether it's going to be irritable bowel disease. So, um, so you go by the symptoms and you treat the symptoms. The first thing I do is, of course, I change the diet. And probiotics is very, very important because of the microbiome. But I'll tell you a story. Last week, last week, I was listening to a webinar on uh it was from the wolf conservative cons group i can't remember the name of it i can't remember the, it was a young woman she was going for her phd and she was studying the microbiome of wild red wolves and cap and red wolves in captivity there's only 300 left in um in the world and they're native only to north america and they reside in the alligator uh, river and um, was the eastern part of South Carolina. And there's only 20 in the wild and the rest, uh, 280 are in zoos. Really? Wow. Yeah, right. And I was kind of taken aback when she, she, put, she put up a graph and she was showing the zoos what they were feeding these red wolves. They were feeding these red wolves kibbles. Most of them were getting kibble. Some were getting kibble and meat. I don't know if it was raw. She wasn't Pacific. And some were, and two of the zoos were feeding them deer carcass. But the IBD is so high in these wolves that they're actually dying from, uh, this is 300, le what, 200 left in, in the world, and they're dying from IBD, the ones that are in captivity. And I said, well, they're feeding kibbles. But, but, but she can't say anything because this is, she can't speak up and say anything. She's just studying this. But I mean, I could tell you right now, get those wolves off of kibbles. But they're, they're getting, they're dying from uh, IBD. So, um, um, what was my trainer? So I'm trying to make a point here. But anyhow, anyhow, even the ones that were eating the deer carcass, the the bacteria was imbalanced. If you, if you looked at the fecal matter from um, uh, the scan of the wild wolves, you had a very balanced 
of very beneficial uh, pathogens of uh, bacteria in the guts versus the ones that were in the zoo. All of them had an imbalance, even the ones that were eating raw meat, even the ones that were eating the deer carcass, they had an imbalance of bacteria. And you will see that, you will see that. Now I'm gonna try and name any of those bacteria, <laughs> but there, right, there yeah. are, yeah, I can't pronounce any of them, but the role of gut flora is so, so important. And, uh, and you'll see that when you look at the gut flora of cats, I'm not even trying to pronounce this, but it's six, it's enterobacteriosi. It counts for, six, this is negative gram bacteria, and it counts for 66% of total bacteria in cats with IBD versus a healthy cat, which would be lower than 0.01%. So you have an imbalance of an overgrowth of really gram-negative pathogens. And you might have seen on my website, I had, they had a study where they wanted to disprove raw feeding, that with raw feeding, you were gonna get bacteria overload and that it was gonna be dangerous to humans to handle raw feeding, that you're gonna get uh, salmonella and E. coli and everything. And they did the study. They had, had a group of dogs that were eating commercial pet food versus dogs that were eating raw. And then they examined their uh, poop, right? And it was the commercial fed that dogs that had a high amount of gram-negative pathogens versus the raw fed, which had normal, uh, you know, uh, microbiome load. So that plays a very important part and it's macronutrients. Macronutrients is what is plays an also a very important role on the balance of your microbiome. That's protein, carbohydrates, and fats. So if you haven't, it has to be you know, a good ratio, like for years, they didn't know how, for years, I was talking to a woman about her finicky cat, and there's been studies, for years, cats have been accused of being finicky and fussy eaters, and for 60 years, because that's how long pet food has been around for cats, since the 50s, dogs, it's been around a little bit much longer, the uh, kibbles, and um, they've, it took them up until recently, within the past two years, to realize that cats want, they become finicky when you don't give them the macronutrients that matches their natural prey. So you look at a mouse, you look at the amount of protein, the fat and carbohydrates, and that's what the cat food should be. And if you don't give that to them, then they, they become finicky. Oh, they'll eat it for about a year. And then all of a sudden the cat doesn't want to eat that food anymore. And everybody's like, well, what's the problem? The problem is you're not giving the cat the protein and and the fat and I well they they say twelve percent carbohydrates but I, I remember when I was taking this class on feline nutrition I said to the woman where in the wild do cats get carbohydrates and she said well they don't but the 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 idea is that maybe they get a little bit from the stomach content of their prey but even that comes to about zero point zero three percent so. <laughs> you can actually eliminate carbohydrates completely from a, a cat's diet and have just meat. I think the maximum is 60% meat and 40% fat and zero carbs would beat a cat's uh, requirement, you know. So <clears throat> getting back to IBD and, and also pet food, like when I was feeding my cat and she got pancreatitis, the cat food, she I didn't know about raw yet. I still had her own commercial food and it was only one brand she would eat and it was the cheapest, junkest cat food from the grocery store. 
because if I fed her anything else, she <clears throat> she would turn beet red. So she had an allergy to everything except this one particular brand. I, I guess I shouldn't name it. <laughs> but yeah. when I started learning more and more about pet food and what's in it, it had something called carrageenan. And carrageenan is processed seaweed and it's used as a thickener. And it's also used to cause causes inflammation in the whole gastro um, tract and the colon, the, the, the stomach, everything. They, as a matter of fact, in laboratory rats, they will give the rats teeny tiny amounts of carrageenan to cause inflammation in the GI because they, they want to try their uh, drugs out on treating IBD. So let's give the rats some IBD so we can test our drugs. And carrageenan is, is what's used. I think it's Carrageenan is outlawed in the uh, in certain areas in Europe, especially in baby food. But you still see it here in this country. I don't know if you see it in New, New Zealand, um, but in this country, you'll st you'll still see it as a thickener in even health food. You go to the health food store, you'll see it in dairy products. Carrageenan. So that's something you want to look out for. But a lot, eighty percent of pet food has carrageenan in it. So that could be linked also to IBD. So you want to you want to fix the uh, microbiome. So I get them on soil soil based probiotics. I change the diet to something raw and and uh, raw diet with, and also you can use herbs, and you and you can use homeopathy to uh, just to address the symptoms. But when so let's go back that, real go quick. What were, what were you discussing, or what was the probiotic? Um, that you were saying is this something that you purchase or are you sourcing this from from food itself so, soil based uh, probiotics um, you really have to look for it I found one place that does uh, sell it specifically for cats and dogs uh, there you know they, they have uh, cats and dogs have much more uh, uh, bacteria in their their guts than humans do so it's not really a good idea to give them human uh, probiotics because uh, their numbers are greater and a lot of the uh, you got to be aware some of them are made from milk sources or or um, cornstarch you don't want to give that to a cat or a dog uh, specifically especially because a lot of cats about 80% many cats about 80% are allergic or in, very sensitive to dairy products so you want to get soil based so it comes from the soil uh, right you know, but you could also another good for natural is a raw green tripe. If you have heard of that, that's a good. Yeah. Most cats, most cats won't eat it. I had one cat. Poppy did eat raw green tripe, but I couldn't get the other two to eat it. A lot dogs will eat it, and you know what that is? That's like uh, the stomach of a rudiment animal, and right. that will have bacteria in there, natural bacteria. That's what, and it's green because that's the hay and the grass that the animal ate. So that's a very good source of uh, natural probiotics. Yeah, definitely. My my cat too, or my cat, excuse me. Um, one of them passed away a few weeks ago. So mm -hmm. my, um, but they were both, and and he, the, the male, we still have her brother, the male, um, and he's on, uh, you know, raw food as well, and. He gets the, the the way the the place where we source our raw food from. Uh -huh. They we we buy it specifically with the green tripe already kind of minced in. You know what mm -hmm. I mean? So yeah. he, he gets that on a daily basis, and yeah, he just plows right through it. 
Yeah. You know, he has his, it's interesting how you talk about, you know, them not being finicky, but looking for what they need. And mm-hmm. it's, it's so true because he likes to adjust. Like sometimes he's more keen on the rabbit and then sometimes uh-huh. he's, he wants the chicken or the, the, the turkey, um, you know, and then salmon, it's like very seldomly, like he'll have a few bites, but then that's enough for him. So I guess he, he's already has enough um, you know, min- vitamins and minerals and omegas from what he's getting uh-huh. in, in the other uh, forms of proteins, you know? So right. yeah, he just, he's constantly kind of switching, but his favorite is ultimately rabbit. So, but yeah, it comes with the minced, um, mm-hmm. you know, tripe in there. So it's great for digestion. And I know with the dogs, especially we feed a block of tripe to them when they have their bone. So we do a raw diet for them as well. And so that we, that we give them a bone, usually it's like a duck frame, um, right. So we feed them a block of tripe with the duck frame because that can also help the digestive process of the bones as well. So right. uh, we love green tripe. It's it's one of those tools that we, you know, it's a foundation in our home when we feed our animals. Yeah, you. Um, I get, um, well, I, I try to change up the texture with uh, the cats. I'll give them a whole carcass, you know, but I'll chop it up with a, a butcher knife. Or I'll give them ground sometimes because there's some things uh, I can only get ground, um, like ground mice, <laughs> and yeah. yeah, and and they get rabbit, and I try to change it up too. What's funny with commercial pet food, and I didn't know that because of the enhancers, because they had, in order to get animals to eat uh, cats and dogs to eat uh, commercial pet food, they have to add chemicals in it that entices them to eat it. Um, that's why when you open up a can of cat food, it stinks to high heavens, right? That smell knocks you back. But if you think about it, if you have fresh meat, if you brought fe- fresh meat for home from the butcher, there's no smell. Not even fish will have a smell if it's fresh. Right. But, but if it stunk like the way cat food does, you would probably throw it out. But that's all to entice the animal because ordinarily they would never eat denatured meat like that because they're cooked at such high temperature and all it takes is 107 degrees uh, Fahrenheit at three minutes to destroy all the enzymes, the natural enzymes, to destroy all the essential amino acids and destroy about 50% of uh, the nutrients. So that's why, and it's cooked at high temperatures for over an hour. Meat is denatured, it's dead. There's no nutrients and they have to add all that synthetic vitamins and other stuff in it. And then they have to add uh, enticers to, to because cats will use their noses first before they decide whether they want to eat it or not. And they also base it, does this food have amino acids in it? And they can smell that whether it has amino acids. So they add an enhancer that imitates amino acids. And I had a client not too long ago. She says, I fed the cat. This is canned commercial pet food. I fed him duck. I fed him uh, turkey. I fed him rabbit. But he still wouldn't, you know, he's still finicky, wouldn't eat it. And uh, that's because the food all tastes the same. It doesn't matter if you feed him duck or rabbit or anything because all the meat will taste the same because of the amino acid enhancers in there mm, right so yeah. you might you know so uh so th- that was uh, um yeah i thought that was interesting and they also add something in there i call cat crack which makes the <laughs> which makes the animal addicted to the cat food they have the animals have to be forced to eat this because they would never eat it in the wild so they put and they become they 
become so uh, addicted to, to the food and sometimes to the point where they'll just eat and eat and eat until they vomit. And this is from, um, you know, from what, what they put in uh, pet food. And recently they're finding out that commercial pet food is very high in phosphorus, which c can cause uh, kidney, um, kidney failure because kidney failure is so rampant amongst cats that they say, where is it coming from? Where is it coming from? Why is this happening? Well, it's happening. One, one study back in 1992 was from the vaccines because the three in one that they've given when their core vaccines when they're kittens, it's made on, it's cultured, the virus is cultured on uh, cat feline kidneys. So you're talking about an autoimmune response and then you get the high phosphorus in uh, the cat food, which which is which is some of it which is coming from an inorganic matter like preservatives that is causing kidney failure too wow i mean it's just it all comes back to the diet i mean it's just mm -hmm. incredible. all back to and, the diet you know and and really keeping that proper gut flora is just essential you know mm -hmm. and we're not going to get that with with kibble and stuff that's been cooked you know, at high temperatures and whatnot. You know, I'm, I'm somewhat new to this raw feeding. I never, I haven't done this but in the past, you know, now it's just because of lack of, of knowledge, you know, for the most part, not really mm -hmm. understanding. I knew that I had to try and get them off, you know, when I had dogs in the past, especially before I moved to New Zealand here. Um, mm -hmm. You know, it was one of those things where, you know, oh, well, let's just get a high quality um, kibble, you know what I yeah. mean? And let's, yeah. and let's not get the, you know, the cheaper low grade commercial stuff. Let's go for a little higher grade. I think that's a little bit better, but it wasn't until I moved to New Zealand here. Mm -hmm. Um, and then just, you know, speaking with a few friends and of course, you know, this is where I did my study and really got into it. And it was like, Oh wow. Raw, raw feeding is so crucial. Um, and then there's a really cool company here in New Zealand and I always give them a shout out. They're called raw essentials and they've got about, I think, I don't know, maybe eight or nine stores, um, here in, in, um, New Zealand and they only do raw food and it right. comes fresh from, you know, from the, um, you know, quality butchers and everything else. And it's all, you know, packaged real easy for you to, to manage and handle. And you walk in, there's just, you know, rows of these, you know, neat, um, you know, waist high freezers everywhere. And it's got everything labeled and they're, you know, they're very, that's all they do, you know? So the pet store, the pet food store is nothing but raw food. It's incredible. There's not one bag of kibble there. Um, so anyways, yeah. So I went in there and I said, you know, I was, I was adopting a couple of puppies and I said, I want to raise these pups on raw, right. um, but right. I don't know where to start, you know, and they were mm -hmm. just excellent guides and teaching me about, you know, green tripe and, you know, where to start with the puppies and, you know, as far as, you know, feeding them, you know, mints versus the bone and, you know, slow, you know, get them on the bone slowly and get to be careful, you know, watching them. You know, it was just good guidance along the way. Um, but yeah, but I, then I realized how important it was to them. And so then when, when we adopted the cats, a couple of, uh, you know, probably about a, a year later, it was like, we're going, we're going to put them on raw straight away. Now they were 18 months old. And uh -huh. again, like you were saying, the, the, the cat crack, you know, it was like, they were addicted to that sugar, yep. you know, starchy, you know, cat kibble that they were on. Mm -hmm. And it, it took a little bit of time. We had to go slow, but we got there in the end. And, uh, and my process actually was to, um, you know, what we did is we, we kept them on their regular food just for about a, just a few, not regular food, but the food they were on. I shouldn't right. call that regular food because it's definitely <laughs> not regular food. Um, the food that they were on, you know, okay. So we said, we decided that, okay, they were already stressed out from coming into a new home, you know, we, you know, they were a bit 
weary of the situation. Um, so let's not put, you know, aggravate them anymore by trying to change their food or anything else. Let's just keep something normal, which was the food they were eating. So we kept them on for just, you know, probably about four or five days. And then we went to, we found a holistic kind of, um, it wasn't raw, but it was, you know, a, a canned food. So they just started to get that texture a little bit. So we did 50-50, we kept them on the kibble and then canned food. And that was for a few more days. So they started eating the wet food because they never experienced wet. It was always kibble for the most part. Um, and then it was after about eight or nine days, then we started to offer them um, the raw meat. And, and they actually jumped on it pretty quickly. It was cool yeah. to see. It was like some people say, oh, this might take a few months, you know, because they're no. so addicted to this kibble. And actually it was like after, the, after about 10, 11 days, they started slowly but surely eating the raw meat. And then, you know, next thing you know, I mean, this is, they absolutely love, they absolutely love raw meat now. You know, they, like I talked about earlier, they love their rabbit and their turkey and their duck. Um, you know, we sometimes mix in a little bit of venison, but um, yeah, I mean, they're just all over it. And it's, it's really cool to see them just thriving now. Well, you know, we just have the male now and he's absolutely just thriving um, with his diet and, and it's very powerful. So I'm glad you really touched on, on that in yeah. terms of IBD. And I, you know, the other topic I wanted to discuss was pancreatitis. And I know that you dealt with this with Poppy and you talked about this earlier mm -hmm. on where just the diet change um, was, was all enough. it took was yeah. enough. Yeah. Yep. Exactly. And, and anything um, else you want to add to that? Well, I, I didn't have, there was no transition. I've had, never had a transition issue taking her from commercial to uh to raw because like i said when i got home to the vet and i spoke to my friend she said go raw i went to the butcher got some chicken and she took to it immediately including uh including my little kitten my eight month old siamese when i went to the breeder because i went to the breeder she had all her kittens i i like the idea that she did not vaccinate or uh these cats i, I she left it all up to me. I'm glad about that because, you know, sometimes when you get an animal from a breeder, they vaccinate them and then they neuter them or spay them uh, way too young, way too, way too young as juveniles. People don't realize how important the sex hormones are to the immune system and to bone growth. But she had all the cats on kibbles. And I brought, but when I brought the kitten home, she was, the kitten was two months old and there was some raw meat still in the other cat's bowl and the kitten went right for it and ate it all up. So I didn't have a transition issue with her. She salted raw chicken and ate it. But yes, absolutely. Actually, we have a kitten that we're adopting um in two days so we've already went to go meet her this past mm -hmm. weekend and she's i think maybe 12 or 13 weeks old and um yeah so we're we're gonna bring her home on thursday we work with this um, adoption agency called gutter kitties so this is the uh -huh. second time we've been back to gutter kitties here in new zealand to adopt cats and so yeah we're getting ready to bring her home so we're getting ready to go into that transition period again but like yeah. you said there is no transition period right and that was no. just something that i was told to do but I like your theory, you know, and especially because Luca, the big male that we have, he's already uh -huh. eating raw. So she's going to go, oh, that's what he's doing. This is what I'm yeah. supposed to do, too. That's what my kitten did. I mean, she's went from kibbles immediately to raw. She saw the raw sitting in the bowl and she had to eat it. And uh, <laughs> that was funny, you know, because uh, uh, a lot of 
health issues like hip dysplasia. I don't know how much time we have left to talk, but there's a lot of issues that can be um, avoided like uh, hip dysplasia was never seen until the 1930s in dogs. Wow. And you say, say to yourself, the first cases of hip dysplasia started to appear in vet offices in the 1930s. So what was going on in the 1930s that suddenly you saw hip dysplasia and it was dog food. Dog food had been around, uh, I don't know if I have time to go into the history of it, but it had been around for Feel a few. Free. Feel free. Oh, okay. Well, yeah, go, let's roll. <laughs> okay, well, kibbles started back in the 1800s. It was, I think it's, I want to say the 1860s. It was in the late 1800s. And it was a guy named Jack Spratt. And he's not this guy from the nursery rhyme, you know, Jack Spratt can eat no fat. It's, it's not that. <laughs> yeah. he, was an, he was an American and he was an inventor and he, was, he went to London and he was on the docks and he saw a bunch of sailors throwing biscuits at some dogs and it gave him an idea to make something called dog cakes and these biscuits they were kind of like you could say mres that the sailors would bring with them or the uh, army would bring to them on the battlefield where it's just it's made from flour and water and it's hard as a rock but when you i guess when you stick it in gravy it kind of goes into a, a softer biscuit so he he took that idea of wheat uh, a flour and adding uh, a cow's blood to it. And this was the start of kibbles, dog oh, cakes. Wow. And then of course, when the depression hit, uh, people couldn't afford meat because up to that time, um, to the 19, uh, whatever it was, the depression, turn of the 20th century, uh, people couldn't um, afford meat and because it was too expensive and they wouldn't give the tables, because most animals in those days, eight table scraps, the cats would eat the mice, the dogs, you know, would eat whatever. And uh, and, and, ever, and that's when, that's when hip dysplasia happened in 19, like the 1930s. It's rarely ever seen in the wild, but wolf observers have noticed, they've seen it after a really bad winter when there wasn't a uh, sufficient prey, so it was probably malnutrition. So it's it's has to do with epigenetics, because to this day, I think they're still looking for that gene for, for hip dysplasia. So I don't know if they found it yet, but epigenetics is where you, you trigger a hidden gene, right? And mm -hmm. yep. malnutrition, eating kibbles was what triggered it. And I think also, we neuter our cats and dogs way, way, way too young. People don't understand it takes 18 to 24 months for all the bone plates to close and the hip uh, hip plates are the last ones to close. And with horses, it takes five years. So, and usually the uh, race, the horses on the racetracks are what? They're, they're very young, they're nine months old and they're retired at two years. And you wonder about all the broken legs and the accidents that happen on the racetrack. And that's because of the bone plates have not closed. It takes five years for a horse, 18 months to 24 for a cat or a dog. So if you're feeding them kibbles and then you neuter them when they're four or five months old, it only makes sense that hip dysplasia becomes an issue in certain breeds. Yeah, you see this explosion like you were talking about, you know, in the 1930s, just after the depression. Um, mm -hmm 
of hip dysplasia, you know, especially, you know, it, it, it's crazy because we look and we see stuff that happens in our own domesticated animals like the cats and dogs that mm-hmm. doesn't naturally occur in the wild, you know, so it has to be related to the environment that they're in and that, and, mm-hmm. in, in particular, the food that we're giving them, you know, and, and, and I guarantee we're going to start seeing them in the red wolves too, if they keep them on the kibble, you know? Well, yeah, and, they're, 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 they're all getting, uh, even the ones who are feeding uh, the, the carcass, the deer carcass, they still have an imbalance in the, in the microbiome because something's missing. Something, there's an ingredient that's missing. Maybe it's the soil, maybe the, the food that the red wolves catch, that are the wild ones, there's, uh, there's a chain, whole chain, maybe the rabbits, they eat this certain food that has this certain bacteria that comes from the soil and it goes and it's that chain and that's why the microbiome in the wild red wolves are much healthier than the ones that are in uh, the zoo now, now stress plays stress can play a part also in in, in ibd and um but there's other things too like elephants in the wild do not get t- tuberculosis but they do get it once they go into a zoo or a circus they oh, get wow, it almost immediately yes almost immediately that, yeah, I was reading this a couple of years ago because when I was studying uh, chronic miasms, um, mm-hmm. animals yep. animals get diseases that they don't get in the wild because they're, they're around us humans. And they're not only from the food and other things, the toxic environment making them ill, but I think it's also the close proximity to us because I feel that animals pick up issues that are going on in a family. That's why when I ask people what's going on, what's the relationship with you and the animal to each other and so on, if there's arguments going on, is there fights going on, is, this, is somebody ill in the house? I've noticed when you have animals with cancer, there's humans in the house that have it too because there's a belief, it's, I guess it's kind of metaphysical that things are kind of filtered through the animals and some people believe that they actually take on the illnesses that maybe was meant for the humans but the animals take it up you know because it was even there was a a story um that i remember hearing about a whole family there was a cat that had ibd but the whole family had ibd so they were all it was kind of yeah even the humans had it and i a lot of times with the animals that i see with cancer there is something going on the rescue cat that I was talking about with the necrotic paw, the original owner had committed suicide. So it was, you know about chronic miasm. That's yeah. the mind. There's a certain mind pattern for catching certain illnesses. And one of them is um, for cancer is hatred of oneself, you know, um, severe depression and so on and so forth. And in tuberculosis, there's a micro, there's a, a, a chronic mind, there's a mind pattern behind that. You always see a rise of tuberculosis right after a war. Not only is it, is it uh, uh, malnutrition because there's certain minerals that make it you more susceptible to tuberculosis, but it's great sadness, sorrow. It's, it's eating food that's not natural. It's, seeing your children die before you, you know, as this, uh, these are the things you see in the war and that seems to be an increase of tuberculosis. And so you look at cows and you look at pigs and you look at a cow, they're prone to tuberculosis and so are pigs. What are they? They're eating unnatural food and food, eating food. They are in an unnatural environment where they're in tight 
this is mo most to do with factory farming and in tight areas where they can barely move around and then their children are taken away from them, right, to make milk. But pigs don't suffer as much as cows do. They, they, they get the symptoms, but they don't die from it like the cows do because their kids are not really taken away from them, if, if you know where I'm going with this. And then you yeah, look at the absolutely. elephant, and you look at the elephant, the same thing happens to them. They're taken out of their habitat, they're chained up, they're put in enclosed area, they're eating unnatural food. And their children, too, are taken away from them. They lose their kids. So that's, and, and they say that the tuber all animals in the zoo get some form of tuberculosis once they're in captivity. And you wonder if it's the captivity or it's the close proximity of humans where they're picking up our chronic miasm. And then it's, because um, it's, I've noticed um, with cat ladies, people who have like 100 cats, and I know a few. <laughs> <laughs> that's 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 considered a chronic miasm of psoriasis and i will see with their animals a chronic ear infections chronic skin problems so on and so forth and that's very typical of psoriasis uh and that's the mind pattern of somebody with that my and the miasm so you got a person who collects um uh, a lot of uh, one of those house hoarders. So instead yep. of hoarding stuff, they're hoarding cats. That's typical of a chronic miasm of psoriasis. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it filters so, down. You, it does, it filters down. It, it filters, filters down. down. And these, I mean, especially these, these mammalian animals that are in, in close proximity with us, you know, they just absorb everything. You mm -hmm. know, they're, they're sponges for their environment. Um, and you see, you know, it's very interesting how you talked about the, not only did the animal have, you know, IBD, but the entire family did, you know, mm -hmm. and, and that's exactly what, um, you know, I'm looking for with my clients is like, what, what other stressor is going on? You know, as, you know, we try and get there as easy as possible because, mm -hmm. you know, that, that can be a delicate situation for some people, you know, but what other stressor is going on that maintaining cause once again. You know, if we go back to what I was talking about earlier with the pet food being the maintaining cause, sometimes it's the environment is the maintaining cause. So you do this, that, and the other, and you get them on, you know, this remedy um, and, and, and this protocol, uh, and then it clears up, but then all of a sudden it flares back up again. It flares back yeah. up again, yeah. Yeah, because mm -hmm. the maintaining cause is still present. And actually, I experienced this. I didn't, you know, I've told this story a few times, so some of you may be listening to multiple podcasts, but, uh, you know, this is, you know, this is, you know, my history and this is, you know, who I am. So we had, a, we adopted a pup um, right after we lost. We, we had, we actually, let me, let me back up. We were married, uh, my wife and I were married on November 14th, 2009. And our three-year-old American Bulldog was the flower girl in our wedding. Right. It's just a you know, real special day, you know, and there's the, you know, we didn't have any kids. Well, unfortunately she passed away a couple of months later. So then we adopted this puppy after she passed, maybe about, you know, six, seven, eight months later, you know, beyond that. But we were in a new marriage. So there was a lot of stress going on, trying to figure out and adjust in, in this early, you know, you know, marriage and how to figure out life and our pup 
just seemed to be very anxious. And I never understood why this animal was so anxious. I thought it mm. was genetic and it might've had to do something with that too. Who knows? Um, but this, this pup was so anxious constantly and just so weary of everything. And, and um, it wasn't till years later when I went back and I really studied holistic medicine to realize, wow, that was a, a direct cause of the environment between my wife and I and our relationship and the tension mm. involved that he was just absorbing. No wonder the animal was so anxious. So yeah, just, um, you know, it's just very interesting, you know, and, and how this all relates. Now, this is holistic health, people out there listening. This is holistic health. It's everything involved, you know, even beyond the physical and emotional stuff that the animal may be dealing with, its environment, it's stuff that can be passed on through people or even passed on through, um, you know, history of the animal and its genetics as well, you know? So, um, yeah, you know, Anthony, I really appreciate you coming on and talking to us today and just really enlightening us with some of the, some of the stuff that goes on in animal health in terms of diet and how to manage different um, scenarios in terms of, you know, IBD and pancreatitis. Uh, what to look for. Um, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on today. So just real quick, before we close up, um, where can people find you? If they're looking, I know that you're in New York City, of course, but in terms of, um, you know, social media or website, you know, people to come and check you out and, and get some assistance from you and for their own animal health. Well, you can go, I have a website. It's cats and dogs naturally, and that's cats, but N like a nancy dogs naturally.com easy right there go check her out go check out her website she's got some excellent blogs there some audio blogs for those of you who like the the um you know the audio content as well so all right anthea well i really appreciate you coming on and thank you so much well thank you